Pacifica Radio, this is the broadcast. As heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in Los Angeles, in Oregon, on KYAQ on the Central Coast, and Queso in Cottage Grove, Lancaster's Pennsylvania's WLRI, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU, Columbus, Ohio's WGRN, Palinville, New York's WLPP, Grand Rapids, Michigan's WPRR, New Orleans WHIV, Gallup, New Mexico's KNIZ, Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ, Seattle, Washington's KODX, KFOI in Red Bluff and Redding, California, KKRN in Round Mountain, California, and Minneapolis-St. Paul's AM950 KTNF. And coast to coast and around the globe, streaming on the internets on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, GDPR Revolution 99, and Detour Talk, blanketing planet Earth five days a week, as usually hosted by Brad Friedman of bradblog.com. But Brad and co-host Desi Doyen have time off. You have me, Angie Cuero, sitting in. I'm the host of In Deep with Angie Cuero, heard on many of these same stations and streams. You know, Brad only takes time off for really, really fun stuff. So today he has opted for emergency oral surgery. Way to go, Brad. He is going to be fine. He'll be back soon. But before he went under the Novocaine today, he and Desi knocked out their latest grain news report, which we will share with you later on today's show. So you are not completely without them. Torture is back in fashion in Washington, D.C., as Gina Haspel has just been confirmed as head of the CIA. Her connections to, oversight of, and complicity in destroying evidence of torture by the CIA were a very big story. But from all appearances, she's decided that was a very bad thing, a bad impression to leave at her Senate hearing. So she wrote an I Changed My Mind memo, quote, with the benefit of hindsight and my experience as a senior agency leader, the enhanced interrogation program is not one the CIA should have undertaken. The United States must be an example to the rest of the world, and I support that, end quote. Hindsight being the last seven days, apparently. Today she is in at the top of the Central Intelligence Agency. So let me welcome back to the broadcast Daphne Aviatar, Director of Security with Human Rights at Amnesty International USA. Daphne, welcome back. Thank you so much for having me. How is the news going over at Amnesty? Badly. Um, you know, this is this was a fight that we thought maybe we could win. Um, it there seemed to be a lot of opposition to Haspel. I think that those of us who were concerned about torture and remember the torture program in the Bush administration and thought that that would be enough, that senators would remember that as well and realize it's a bad thing, whether you think she would do it again or not, that we're promoting someone who supervised torture and was directly involved in that program is a bad thing for the United States. But unfortunately, um, as you said, she kind of talked her way out of it a bit, wrote a letter to kind of say like, oh, yeah, it was bad. I agree. And tried to, even though during the hearing, during the hearing, she was really careful not to answer certain specific questions. For example, she wouldn't say that torture was immoral mm-hmm. or that what the CIA did was immoral, which was, I thought, really quite damning. But so it's, it's disappointing. I mean, on the other hand, it's politics and 
we were seeing the politics of this, that there was a lot of pressure on certain Democrats, particularly in red states, to vote for her. And so I can't say I'm 100 percent surprised. Mm-hmm. I mean, the good thing is she she won by so far I'm seeing 53 to 45 was the vote, which is not very much support for a CIA director. I think in the past they've often passed been approved unanimously. Mm-hmm. So um, I don't have the full history of all those votes in front of me, but I think it's unusual to have so much opposition to a CIA director. And it does send a message to other countries that the U.S. and the CIA need to work with, saying, like, be careful. This is be careful of working with the U.S. government and the CIA in particular, because this is someone who a lot of Americans don't trust. Is there are there existing now situations that with Gina Haspel at the head of the CIA, torture would be an immediate concern or is it something that we're afraid we might see in the near future in situations that really aren't at hand right now? You know, it's difficult to know because, of course, the CIA is so secretive. I think one question she really never answered directly was she said the CIA would not resume its own interrogation program again. She never said anything about whether they would outsource an abusive interrogation program. And I think that's a real concern. I mean, that I think is a bigger concern right now because the U.S. is – involved with other countries in holding, detaining prisoners in Syria and Iraq and other parts of the world where we're not bringing them to Guantanamo, but we're holding them or supporting them being held by other countries. The CIA is probably interrogating some of them. We don't know exactly what the circumstances are. We don't know exactly what the U.S. is participating in. We know, for example, that some of the partners that the U.S. works with, such as Saudi Arabia, the United Arab Emirates, are involved in torture. Is the U.S. participating? Is the CIA taking advantage of that and interrogating those same people who have been tortured? We don't know that stuff. That's the kind of stuff I'm worried about. Mm -hmm. One last question for you, Daphne. I know it's a really busy day for you. Amnesty has obviously been dealing for decades with governments around the world that deny human rights whenever they find that it benefits them. So what lessons has Amnesty learned if we do discover that Haspel does revert to form, either through a loyalty pledge to Donald Trump or otherwise, what can be applied from what Amnesty has already learned in terms of oversight and getting the public to move against this sort of thing? I think what Amnesty has learned and what I've learned in, in, in a really disappointing way, and I think what America, many Americans are learning over the last year and a half, is that You really can't count on the U.S. government to do the right thing. Mm -hmm. And things that we thought were clearly unlawful and clearly unconstitutional, and we thought that that Constitution would protect us, you really can't count on that. You really have to make sure that there there are some great members of Congress, there are some great senators who really stood up against this nomination. Make sure that we support them to keep keep strong oversight of what this administration is doing and really pressure the other ones who didn't stand up to this nomination. They have to know it's really important, too. It's really important for the United States' reputation in the world. It's really important for how the United States is treating people, for the United States to be able to object to any other country's treatment of anyone. We have to be taking care of decent care of people ourselves. And if the U.S. is supporting torture anywhere in the world, that undermines us, it undermines our security, 
it undermines all respect for human rights. And so I think that's the kind of thing people have to keep telling their senators. You know, thank your senator if they voted the right way on this, mm-hmm. if they opposed Haspel. And this is something I want to go back and do. And, you know, and, and let senators who who supported her, who you thought should have voted against her, let them know you're disappointed. Because it's important for them to know that people care and that there are consequences. Daphne, I thank you so much for your passion and your work and for making some time today. Thank you. Thank you so much for your interest. Daphne Evitar, Director of Security with Human Rights at Amnesty International USA. Moving to other news, key advisor to the White House, a.k.a. Trump son-in-law, Jared Kushner's family, may get their company bailed out by a foreign entity. Or more accurately, the company's 44-story Manhattan building, the address, I'm not kidding, is 666 Fifth Avenue, This is one of those stories with octopus arms all over the place. It's not really Jared's business. He was forced out by public criticism because he was mixing Trump connections with it. It's not really the country of Qatar buying in. It's Brookfield Properties. One of its major investors is the Qatar Investment Authority. That's a long way from Jared and the Trumps, right? Not so fast. The New York Times spells it out right here. Quote, The deal with Brookfield is likely to raise further concerns about Jared Kushner's dual role as a White House point person on the Middle East and a continuing stakeholder in the family's company. Mr. Kushner earlier this year lost his top-secret security clearance amid concerns that foreign governments could attempt to gain influence with the White House by doing business with the Kushner companies. Although he resigned as chief executive of the company when he joined the White House in January 2017, Mr. Kushner retained most of his stake in the firm. He shed some of his assets, including his stake in 666th Fifth Avenue, by selling them to a trust controlled by his mother. His real estate holdings and other investments are worth as much as $761 million, according to government ethics filings. More fun with Trumps and sub-Trumps. As for the Trump, he gathered up a coalition of shining, happy white people to talk about scary terrorist brown people again. And they all agreed we need protection from them. All right, I am being flippant here, but this gathering at the White House involving only state and federal officials who oppose California sanctuary laws, it wasn't, God forbid, a true hearing on all perspectives on the relevant important issues, because that is not what Trump does. It was, in fact, a forum to bash immigrants as terrorists, animals, murderers. And if you looked around that table, at least to my eyes, every single person there was white. Now, it's irrelevant as to whether they have non-white ancestors. Everyone that I could see in that picture carries the skin tone that makes their lives easier. They are not the ones getting followed around stores. And on the extreme end of the spectrum, they're not the ones who live in fear of ice breaking their doors down and pulling them away from their children. You can see them. Make your own decisions. Look at the pictures at C-SPAN. In fact, there's the whole transcript and the audio of the gathering there. Now, again, this was not about confronting real issues and varied legit takes on ice or the wall or immigration, all of which was discussed. This was a consortium of people gathered to pillory the other guy, be that an immigrant coming in without papers or Governor Jerry Brown, very other to this group. When Trump was criticized in public for referring to, quote, these people as, quote, animals, the White House shot back that he was clearly talking about the violent criminals belonging to the MS-13 gang. All right. 
Let's take that at its face value. If you look at the transcript, that is a feasible defense, but you can't counter the visuals. And the long context from the campaign trail right up to today. Us is talking about them without them being in the room. And everyone there patting themselves on the back about how right they are. News, flash, nothing gets done that way. Nor does it help to rely on dehumanizing terms like catch and release or illegals. People aren't fish, nor are they entirely defined by a single element of their lives, like whether they have the right papers. Nor is it helpful to blame Democrats for ice tearing families apart. He did that, too. Trump is the great and powerful Oz, all powerful until it comes to criticism of his decisions and what he supports and what his government is doing, then it's someone else's fault. This time, the Democrats. And he had to pull that juvenile thing of he can't say Democratic. Of course, he has to say Democrat as the adjective. Because as a toddler in chief, it's very important to tweak the noses of people with the important stuff. Among everything else at this meeting, at least one person gave off a very weird vibe. I want you to listen to this clip from the gathering as taped by C-SPAN. The woman you're about to hear is the mayor of San Jacinto, Crystal Ruiz. The local press enterprise notes that hers is a largely ceremonial position, one of those ribbon-cutting mayors, but it's not an elected seat. At any rate, listen not just for the words here, but for the subtext. I'm Crystal from the city of San Jacinto, and can I speak frankly? Yes. I'm sitting here in this room in awe of God's power, how he can take someone who was homeless in a tent, make them the mayor in the city, and bring them before the president of the United States of America, who wants to hear the cry of our people, and that's what's going on. Our people are the ones hurting. Sacramento is angry because they lost an election. For God's sakes, get over it. They're angry, and you know what? Now we're more angry. They're releasing these criminals not by their houses. They're not releasing them by their houses. They're releasing them by our houses. Our children are at risk. My community is my family. You're putting my family at risk. Every day we're getting more and more uh, reports from the police department about how they can't arrest these people. They arrest them. Everything's a misdemeanor because it's not near Jerry Brown's house not near the elected officials' house. It's, it's in our communities, and we're tired of it. We need help, Mr. President. We need help protecting the city of San Jacinto, Escondido, the state of California. All of us need help getting this solved. I was just at a church the other day. I was at my church, and I went over to another one, a Hispanic church. And all the people from the Hispanic church were out there. And they all came up to me, did you send Mr. tell Mr. Uh, uh, Trump that we have a message for him? We want help. You see, every one of us came from somewhere else. We all came from different countries. My husband is, is from Mexico. My family came way back from uh, before the, the Revolutionary War, and we've been fighting for this country ever since, fighting for the constitutional rights of our country. I'm not going to stop fighting for those rights. It's coming back, and it's coming back fast. Faster than even the people in this room understand. Kevin understands what's happening. You see it maybe better than anybody. But it's coming back. People are tired of this nonsense, yeah. and it's happening. So don't give up the fight. I'm don't not, give up the fight. You are our leader. Thank and you. thank God for you. That is the other danger 
Trump has raised to the highest level people in power citing their religious beliefs to bolster policy. Those are the same attitudes that have given us bloodshed from the Crusades to 9-11 to the November 2015 attacks in Paris and on and on, and this has no place in policy or politics. This woman's religious fervor has no place in deciding how this country deals with its citizens and aspiring citizens. None. Now, part two. I will grant you, this may be nothing but my own perception. Ruiz's near-rapturous declamation of service to her leader? Now, I almost heard Savior there. Can you? Listen again. You are our leader. And thank God for you. Scary to my ears, anyway. Governor Brown was not having this, by the way. I love him. He tweeted, quote, Real Donald Trump is lying on immigration, lying about crime, and lying about the laws of California, flying in a dozen Republican politicians to flatter him and praise his reckless policies changes nothing. We, the citizens of the fifth largest economy in the world, are not impressed. More around the corner. We're just a few minutes away from Desi and the Green News Report. I'm Angie Coiro. This is the Bradcast. Five major corporations now own over 80% of all media in the United States, but they don't control us. The Bradcast and the Green News Report are 100% independent, 100% listener-supported. But we can't do it alone. We need you. Your support helps us bring real facts to listeners at independent stations across the country. You can make a real difference by supporting independent media. This country ain't going to save itself, but we can all do it together. Join us at Brad bradblog.com slash donate. That's bradblog.com slash donate. And thanks. It's the Bradcast. I'm Angie Curro. I do have a positive story to bring you. Immigrations and Customs Enforcement got busted by a federal judge for lying about Daniel Ramirez Medina's legal status and alleged unproven gang affiliation. ICE tried to kick him out of the country, but Ramirez was here legitimately as a dreamer under DACA, and he kept that status legally current, renewed it just last May. According to Slate, ICE didn't care about that meticulously legally updated paperwork. Quoting an agent, it doesn't matter because you weren't born in this country. Not how the law works. Maybe why the story turned out like this, as reported by Slate, ICE then interrogated Ramirez, fingerprinted and booked him, confiscated his work permit, sent him to a detention center, and placed him in removal proceedings. It also purportedly tried to revoke his DACA status, subjecting him to imminent deportation. Typically, the government may not rescind an individual's DACA status without giving the beneficiary an opportunity to contest its decision. But ICE claimed that Ramirez's DACA benefits could be terminated, quote, automatically because he presented, quote, an egregious public safety concern due to his alleged gang affiliation. Parenthetical note from Slate ICE routinely alleges Latino immigrants with no indication of gang affiliations are members of a gang in order to detain and deport them. Apparently, this is what they got busted on this time. Slate goes on to talk about the group of attorneys that stepped in to defend him. They allege that ICE's key claim that Ramirez is gang affiliated was a complete falsehood. 
One of his lawyers presented evidence indicating ICE had doctored his statement, erasing words he had written in pencil to make it seem as if he had confessed to being in a gang. Pencil provided by authorities, by the way. During his initial interrogation, it says ICE officers asked him five times whether he belonged to a gang, and he repeatedly said no. Instead, he asserted he had, quote, fled California to Washington to escape from the gangs. Now, the story goes on to note the gang experts who testified that Ramirez had none of the telltale history, affiliations, or markings to identify him as a gang member, and then quotes the judge's findings. ICE's conclusory findings have been contradicted by experts and other evidence. The government produced no evidence to contradict the multiple expert testimony. Its claims are completely contradictory to the government's own previous findings after extensive background checks meant to uncover evidence of gang association. Here's where it gets ugly. Most troubling to the court is the continued assertion that Mr. Ramirez is gang-affiliated despite providing no evidence specific to Mr. Ramirez at the immigration court in connection with his administrative proceedings and offering no evidence to the court to support its assertions four months later. The payoff? Martinez concluded that ICE had violated Ramirez's rights by depriving him of constitutionally protected liberty and property interests without due process of law. He called ICE arbitrary and capricious without any rational explanation for its decision. He prohibited the government from asserting, adopting, or relying in any proceedings on any statement or record purporting to allege or establish Mr. Ramirez is a gang member gang-affiliated, or a threat to public safety. In other words, Slate concludes, he ordered ICE to stop lying. Just to put a little extra sting in here, Judge Martinez was appointed by George W. Bush. On a completely different topic, it's true confession time. Let me ask you this, and I'm not asking you to be a historian here, but when this was in FDR's second Bill of Rights, I mean, it sounds like a lot of the stuff that was manifested in the New Deal. So was this part and parcel of the New Deal and it was accepted? We had had CWA. We had a number of things in the New Deal that were hiring people. But no, no, we had a war going on in 1944 and other things. And it, it was beaten back. And I can get into some reasons for that. That has been floating around ever since. And it's the kind of a thing where they hope nobody ever takes it seriously. But mm-hmm. if you think through the implications of this idea, it dramatically transforms so much about our economy, so much about our thinking about our relationship to the economy, our empowerment in the economy, all kinds of things. But, well, the first thing it does is it gets rid of the need for a minimum wage. Because if you want a job and you can get a job at 15, and I'm sure that would be indexed to inflation and, and stuff so it would go up, then, you know, hey, if you want to work for less than that, why not? Because you can get a job for 15, then, you know, you might want to work at your your uncle's store or something for less. That's fine. But if you want to make 15 bucks an hour, just go do that. Now, what that does, though, is it means that employers, the, the basic thing that does is it means employers would have to compete to get employees. And when you start mm-hmm. thinking through the implications of that, it just gets so dramatic. Well, let's talk about well, the implications of that we, we can parse through. But first and foremost, I'm hearing about business owners 
not to denigrate all business owners, but the larger the business owner is, the more political clout they have. And collectively, I can't imagine business owners going for this. So what's the sales pitch that makes everybody understand this is a good thing? Well, back up, because uh, you just nailed the opposition and you nailed a lot of what happens in our economy. If you have a certain level of unemployment, then people have to work at the lowest wage to survive. That employers don't have to compete because people are looking for jobs. So mm-hmm. that's the current basic situation of our economy and where they try to keep it. By they, I mean the political clout business, major business owners you just said, because then they have all the power. They can say, do what we say, or you're out of a job, and everybody's afraid of losing their jobs, et cetera, et cetera. If everybody has the option to get a job, because this this wage filters up to higher wages throughout the economy. Okay, uh, there are so many arguments for, but those all have to do with we the people democracy. It's about sharing the benefits of our economy much more equally. So those who currently uh, pay people exploitative wages, exploitative jobs, et cetera, and benefit dramatically from that, then you, then you see why they would want to keep things the way they are. Now, just to, just to give an idea of how exploitative and how much advantage they get, okay? Mm-hmm. In one day a couple weeks ago, Jeff Bezos of Amazon, he made $12 billion, okay? Now, if, if mm-hmm. you're like you or me and you only make a million dollars a month, okay, because I'm sure mm-hmm. that's what you may you make on your yes, radio Yes, I do. Career, right? No, I'm actually up to two now, two mil a month. Mm-hmm. If you make a million dollars a month, it would take you a thousand years to make what Jeff Bezos made in a day. That is the level of inequality going on in our economy. So you get the mm-hmm. idea that, that a transformative change like this benefits all of the rest of us a lot. But we don't right now have that kind of political clout where we can mm-hmm. get this done. Unless we all show up and vote. That's a hint, everybody. <laughs> well, you know, we do have some things we can build on. If the basic idea is to give people $15 an hour minimum wage, we already have high visibility and a success rate with the fight for 15 So, I mean, at least that is already out there. That's good, yeah. But, but that doesn't mean the jobs are out there. That right. just means those right. jobs that are there don't have to pay more than 15 They have to pay at least 15 but not more. This changes that. This means that employers have to compete to get you to come there. That means that your Mm -hmm. boss better not be mean to you anymore. That means that you can choose to do something you want to do with your life. You you would be empowered. This is a solid proposal based on the ideas of democracy, where we, the people, have a system that is run of, by, and for the people. And if you think about it, why, why wouldn't a democracy do that? Of course we'd do that. If we could, but we can't right now, but we can dream about it and we can talk about it. And if people understand that, they could start maybe showing up and voting and stuff if they they could have something out of it. Well, some of the names you mentioned that are behind it obviously carry a lot of clout. Uh, Bernie Sanders, unfortunately, has become a divisive figure, but he certainly has a following. Cory Booker is looked at as a blend of establishment politician and a guy who seems to have most of his heart in the right place. There's Kirsten Gillibrand, Kamala Harris, Elizabeth Warren, Jeff Merkley. These these are not people who don't have power and don't have the skills of persuasion. Well, the proposal is being kicked around like by the Center for American Progress, which is considered 
to be like the Clinton wing. It's being kicked around by the Center for Budget and Policy Priorities, uh, the Saunders Institute and others. I think it's becoming like the idea of uh, some form of Medicare for all. It's becoming one of those basic democratic ideas that is going to continue on as Democratic Party idea, along with uh, some form of free college, too, by the way. Why wouldn't mm-hmm. a democracy make sure everybody can go to college? Why wouldn't a democracy make sure that everybody gets health care? And why wouldn't a democracy make sure everybody can have a good job? If that's if we, the people, were making those decisions and we can get there if we all show up and vote, that's a hint out there. Again. <laughs> <laughs> I sense a theme, Dave I'm relentless. <laughs> I'm relentless. You know, and, the, and one last thought on this, and that is in terms of selling it, I really get tired of seeing the the stories about, you know, disillusioned Trump voters who would vote for him again and don't understand why he hasn't done what he said he would do. But these are people who are acutely aware of how badly jobs are needed, especially coal towns and oil company towns and that sort of thing. I mean, they don't have jobs. And if you can go to them and say, I don't care if you voted for Trump, I don't care if you liked Obama, here's a job. I imagine that's got something of a sailing point. And it makes sense. It just makes so much sense. And and then they're going to argue, of course, well, how would you pay for it? Well, let me answer that. The first way is, well, didn't they just give a massive tax cut to those people who uh, can make $12 billion in a day? Didn't they just mm-hmm. give a dramatic increase in military spending? Aren't they using tremendous amounts of money for incentives for oil companies to do more? This whole idea of will you pay for it, the only thing that means is how to, is about stopping uh, Democrats from doing things that are for the benefit of we the people, to make people's lives better. Yours, you're when it's about making people's lives better, how do you pay for it? When it's about, you know, the corporations, the rich, et cetera, it's, oh, yeah, well, we have to do this. Well, people who understand how money works. America, we have a sovereign currency. That means that the money originates from the government. How do you pay for it? You write a check. Okay, there's a mm-hmm. limit. You can't keep doing that. Uh, to the point where there's massive inflation or something, but you can do that. Right now we have we have a problem of deflation. Of course we can do this. Just pay for it. Just write a check. Do it. And then, you know, later on if there's massive inflation, that would be because of an overheating economy. But the other side of that becomes that well everybody can get a job anywhere anyway at that point. So so those are those are the kind of things that, that come into this no. Federal jobs guarantee is the best idea that's been around in a long time. Think how many problems it solves. Welfare, you know, I mean, like things like food stamps and such. Who needs food stamps if you're getting 15 bucks an hour, depending on where you live? Yes. Uh, yeah, I was going to say, except in California. But... <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. And if, if this job comes with health care, well, then who? what happens to our, our worries about who can and can't have health care, especially if we add Medicare for all? But all of those government programs that are about helping the poor and all of that, you know, that's that's actually not a very democracy thing. What if everything was available to everybody? That's democracy. So so that that's, you know, the, the I'm getting way ahead of this, but the basic idea of a federal jobs guarantee, I think the idea has time has come. Dave Johnson is now entering his second decade of educating me about things I should have known. He's also used to be with the Campaign for America's Future and the Center for Media and Democracy as a senior fellow in both cases. Dave, thank you as always. Yeah. Hey, I'm on Twitter as D.C. Johnson. 
Indeed he is, and it's a fun Twitter follow. Would you like to make one more pitch for the vote? You better get out there and vote if you want to have these kind of things. Just get out and vote. Hey, this year they're going to do everything they can to try to make you hate every politician so much you don't vote. Don't listen to it. This year is the year. Make sure you vote. Make sure everybody you know votes. Get out there and do it. Don't listen to the smears you're going to be hearing. Don't listen to any of that. Hey, here, for example, they just Mitch McConnell's floating an idea of not letting senators go home this summer. That's because so many more Democratic senators are running for re-election, so they won't be able to campaign. Just go vote. How's that? Dave, thank you. Good talking to you. And that's the end of today's True Confessions. You can safely assume that I know everything else, or at least that Desi Doyen is just moments away with the Green News Report. One of those last two sentences is true. I'm Angie Cuero. This is the broadcast. The Bradcast and the Green News Report are 100% independent, 100% listener-supported. But we can't do it alone. We need you. Please help us bring real facts to listeners at independent stations around the nation. Please drop by bradblog.com donate. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. Today, I'm Angie Quero sitting in on the broadcast. They're not gone, gone. Brad is sprawled in a dentist chair, hopefully with some very good drugs. Desi is being supportive and wonderful. Before they headed out, Desi got together today's Green News Report. As I look back on those decisions, I would not make the same decisions again. EPA Chief Scott Pruitt, who still has a job, gets grilled by Democratic senators. In some cities, every single road shut down. Extreme storms kill five in the northeastern U.S. King County, Washington, files climate liability lawsuit against major oil companies. Plus... If they're exercising during the third trimester of pregnancy... Um, they may want to consider not exercising outside. New study finds air pollution dangers extend into the womb. All of those dangers and more straight ahead. From Bradblog.com, I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyen. Stand by for six minutes of independent green news, politics, analysis, and snarky comment. I love cold country. My lungs are so black I once had the hiccups and the canary flew out. (laughs) This is your Green News Report. Okay, Desi Doyen, in our last Green News report, you had a story on how global warming is making storms worse. And what do you know? Today we have terrible storms on the East Coast. Yes, a large and very dangerous storm system caused severe damage in the Northeast this week, including generating three tornadoes in New York State, where Governor Andrew Cuomo declared a state of emergency. The storm's record-setting high winds caused the deaths of at least five people, knocked out power to hundreds of thousands of people, triggered flash floods, and forced the closure of some regional rail lines. It's another reminder to be sure that you and your family are prepared for these increasing intense extreme weather events. In politics, Trump Environmental Protection Agency Administrator Scott Pruitt got a grilling from Democrats in a Wednesday Senate Appropriations Committee hearing. Mmm, grilled Pruitt. Democratic Senator Tom Udall of New Mexico excoriated Pruitt over the 12 separate probes and investigations into his spending and ethics scandals. Twelve 
official federal investigations of this guy. Yes, the inspector general of the EPA said that he will now investigate Pruitt's use of secret private email addresses that bypass public records laws, but it may have to wait until he gets a bigger budget. He was using secret email addresses. Right. A private server. Yes. Lock him up. Here's Senator Tom Udall at that hearing. Administrator Pruitt, it's hard to know uh, where to begin this morning. Every day there seems to be a new scandal and you at dead center. I'm tempted to say your scandals are a mere sideshow distracting us from the long-lasting devastation your leadership is making on human health and the environment. Tempted to say, he just said it. Also in that hearing, Administrator Pruitt claimed that the controversies were mostly overblown, but he did admit that as I look back on those decisions, I would not make the same decisions again. And I'm sure we're going to talk about some of those. Oh, just a few. And the administrator denied knowing that his own employees helped block a federal study showing toxic chemicals are contaminating water systems across the country. And that study has still not been released. Right. Meanwhile, just one of the costs of shifting the burden of pollution to the public, a new study has found that the harm of air pollution extends even into the womb. They found that children of mothers who were exposed in their third trimester to fine particles of air pollution from fossil fuels had a 60% higher risk of elevated blood pressure. And that has lifelong negative health impacts, according to lead author Dr. Noel Miller of Johns Hopkins University. Children who have elevated blood pressure in childhood have a higher probability of having hypertension later in life and cardiovascular diseases. Another type of pollution, plastic, has now been discovered in the deepest part of the ocean. A plastic bag was found in the Mariana Trench in the Pacific Ocean, some seven miles beneath the surface. A new analysis documented nearly 3,500 pieces of plastic pollution and fishing gear on the deep sea floor. Some countries and cities have begun to ban single-use plastic products to address the growing scourge of plastic pollution in the ocean. But some good news, a federal appeals court has ordered a halt to construction on some portions of Dominion Energy's controversial Atlantic Coast Pipeline on the grounds that a permit granted by the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service is inadequate to protect six endangered species along its route. And finally, in Washington state, King County, home to the city of Seattle, has filed a climate liability lawsuit against five giant oil companies. The county is seeking damages to help pay for the costs of dealing with accelerating climate change impacts like sea level rise, extreme weather events, and ocean acidification, which is harming Washington state's shellfish industry. It's the latest in a wave of lawsuits modeled after the tobacco industry litigation, alleging that the oil companies knew burning their products caused dangerous global warming, but misled the public and investors about it. These companies are going to pay a price. The question is, well, we pay it before they do. I think we already have. For much more on all of these stories and the ones we couldn't get to, please check out our website at greennews.bradblog.com. Find us, follow us, and share us worldwide on the Facebooks and the Twitters at Green News Report. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyon. And this has been your... Green News Report. Thank you, Ms. Desi. Hey, we got Manafort news just in from Reuters. The former son-in-law of Paul Manafort, the one-time chairman of President Donald Trump's campaign has cut a plea deal with the Justice Department that requires him 
to cooperate with other criminal probes. Hmm. The guilty plea agreement under seal, not previously reported, this is exclusively Reuters, could add to the legal pressure on Manafort, who's facing two indictments brought by special counsel Robert Mueller in his probe of alleged Russian meddling in the 2016 presidential election. You know, the the one that Giuliani thinks they should just kind of wrap up because it's not getting anything done, that investigation. Back to Reuters, Manafort has been indicted in federal courts in Washington and Virginia with charges ranging from tax evasion to bank fraud and has not pleaded guilty to the charges. Legal experts say Mueller wants to keep applying pressure on Manafort to plead guilty and assist prosecutors with their probe. Trump and Russia have denied allegations they colluded to help Republican Trump win the election. Other news, more attacks on Gaza, and Justin Trudeau is the latest voice to call for answers about the deaths and the injuries. The Guardian UK is reporting, quote, Canada's prime minister has deplored the shooting of a Canadian doctor by an Israeli sniper on the Gaza border and added his voice to calls for an independent investigation into Israeli fire that killed 60 Palestinians and injured thousands more during mass border protests. They included eight children under the age of 16. At least 2,700 people were wounded. Talking about the doctor, the Guardian reports, he works as an emergency physician in southern Ontario. He said he was treating injured Palestinians on the Strip when he was shot in both legs on Monday. He was in Gaza as part of a medical team field testing 3D-printed medical tourniquets. The shooting happened during a lull in the protests. He was wearing a green surgeon's outfit. He said he was standing with orange-vested paramedics about 25 meters away from the protesters. There were no fires, no smoke. He said he was within clear lines of sight to three fortified sniper posts. Another 16 paramedics were injured. The doctor who rescued him was later killed as he was trying to reach another patient. Latest from Gaza. What else is there to say? Smartphones are transforming the landscape for hateful Americans. The combination of people marching for blood and sand or authorities engaging in violence or harassment of men hounding women. And particularly this week, something in the water. It was racists this week. It's been a particularly bad week for them. I'm trying to be fair here, genuinely. For white people calling the authorities on black people for engaging in day-to-day acts of living. And hateful spew from people who want other people to be like them. So the videos have been released of, if you haven't been keeping track, a white woman in Oakland calling the police on two guys who were barbecuing at the lake because they had the wrong kind of barbecue. Yes, she called the police. A woman who called the police in Memphis on a young black male real estate investor. A young, ambitious guy pulling himself up on his own bootstraps with his own business, trying to beat the good American. Who showed her his business card and his company sign that he had out in the yard. She did not want him anywhere near the house that he was inspecting. She later said it's not because she's racist, but she didn't really give a reasonable story as to why she called the police on him. He got the whole thing on his smartphone. It's excerpted around the net. The whole thing's on YouTube. And here's one that's kept on giving this week because the guy has been publicly busted. A New York City lawyer who caters to an Hispanic clientele having a complete meltdown because people in a cafe near his office 
were speaking Spanish. It is something to see. One thing we have to acknowledge if we're ever going to get past otherism is that it's part of us. It's part of all of us. Human beings are wired to distrust anyone who looks other than those from their tribe. We recognize immediately who belongs to us. And our mind has to kick into another mode to counter those inherently othering traits. I talked recently to neuroscientist Robert Sapolsky. He covers this in his new book, Behave. This is really valuable to anybody who thinks that they don't have this in them. Okay, on first pass and on third and 10th and 20th pass, it's like one of the most depressing things about us. Um, This tendency to divide the world into us's and thems and to not be all that nice to thems and horrendously so in circumstances, it's an incredibly hardwired piece of us as a primate, as a social organism. Us theming is incredibly entrenched phylogenetically across all sorts of different species, telling you it's been around for a long, long time. Um, Our brain processes faces of them, people of different races, people of different ethnicities of very different ages than you in under a tenth of a second, under a hundred milliseconds, doing it before you were even consciously aware of what you were looking at. Our brains do that by the time we're about 10 months old. It's like an incredibly entrenched piece of wiring in us. So that's totally depressing. And there's a whole literature out there looking at the worst version of it, which is you stick somebody in a brain scanner and you're flashing up faces at them at a one-tenth of a second rate. And you flash up the face of somebody of a different race. And in the average person, you get activation in a part of the brain called the amygdala, which is about fear and aggression and threat perception and stuff like that. Oh my God, this is the most depressing thing on earth. But then where we begin to get some hope is you take a male baboon and a them is anybody else challenging you for your rank. You take a female chimp and the exact same thing. You take a human and we're malleable as to who is an us and who is a them. It's incredibly easy to manipulate us into changing categories as to who counts. And a great example of that is a follow-up to that exact sort of study. So you're in the brain scanner, you're seeing faces once again flashed up, and now um, each face is wearing a baseball cap. And it turns out, I, I found out recently that San Francisco has a baseball team, and apparently it's, it has a very hostile relationship with some team in Los Angeles. And so now what you do is you have all your test subjects happen to be San Francisco baseball fanatic fans, and they're in the scanner, and each face has either a Giants, they're called, either a Giants or a Dodgers baseball cap on. And suddenly, your amygdala in under 100 milliseconds isn't paying attention to skin color anymore. It's paying attention to whether you are a Giants fan, seemingly in the picture, or a Dodgers fan. And, you know, baseball was invented somewhere within the last 20,000 years or so. It is very recent. And if that could unwire the supposed inevitability of us-them divisions along skin color, There's not a whole lot of inevitability there. So horrible news, you know, in terms of, I think if you're anybody short the Dalai Lama, you've got a very strong 
like primate proclivity towards using and theming and being nicer to in-group members, but it is so easy to manipulate us as to who counts as an us and a them, and those categories can change in a second. Love the caliber of questions coming in from the audience. What neuroscience do you feel contributed to the election of Donald Trump? <laughs> <laughs> a great, great question, and I think that taps in totally to what we were talking about before. Oh my God, how can the poor disproportionately vote for somebody who's going to screw their own financial future? You know, the usual left question about right voting patterns. You know, part of the answer was discovered right after the election, which was the sudden discovery of like the marginalized, aging, undereducated, underpaid white working class in this country. And we're often running with Trump support and opioid epidemics and decreasing life expectancy and everything with that. And that's a story of anxiety and fear and fear and feeling irrelevant to your society and marginalized and, you know, all those things. But in addition, when sort of looking at voting patterns, one of the things that just fascinates me is this whole literature on personality and neurobiology of people as a function of their political views. Where it's most interesting is not people's economic views or geopolitical, people's social views. Uh. Abortion, gay rights, gay marriage, any, any of those things, immigration, not as a, you know, economic issue, immigration as in, is our country's values being threatened, or people's social stances. And if you want to know a remarkable amount of predictive power as to what somebody is going to feel about some of those social political hot buttons, does novelty make them anxious? Does doing a puzzle where there's ambiguous answers get them agitated? When they were five years old, if they were left in a room alone with some new toys, did they go and explore them or did they get upset that they were like alone at that point? Novelty, how often do you wash your hands? Uh -huh. A predictor of that, how many cleaning products do you have in your bathroom? All of these wind up being predictors. If you've got somebody where something novel makes them nervous instead of excited, where something ambiguous makes them feel panicked instead of challenged, where they've been that way since they were five years old, and if everyday experience makes them feel like they want to wash their hands, you've got like 99% predictability they're going to be a social conservative. Like, whoa, and what the studies have shown is look at a five-year-old and what their reaction is to a setting like that, and that is predictive of what their views are going to be 20 years later. And forget whatever they were taught about, like, did they get like Friedman-esque economics in college or what, you know, is the world when it is different than you expected it to be, is that exciting or is it scary? And did the best things happen in the past or did it, does it come in the future with any luck? And does life make you feel like you want to wash your hands or not? And those are incredible predictors of that. Uh, back to some questions here. Can a child be trained to think for themselves rather than following others? And that goes into that predisposition you're talking about. Yep, predisposition, parenting style, and this is the whole world of authoritative parenting rather than authoritarian, rather than neglectful, rather than free, non-interventive sort of libertarian parenting. Um, Absolutely. 
you are training a child to value things and it is quite possible to inculcate into their minds a view that it's not good to be inculcated into thinking certain ways and to think independently. Mm. And with any luck, that goes in good directions, yes. Mm. Back to some more audience questions later, but I did promise we would get into testosterone. And that's one of those hormones that does tend to be fault. Actually, when I get cut off in traffic by a guy, I will always mutter testosterone poisoning, <laughs> and I just drive on. So... <laughs> But again, like the oxytocin, it's got the good and the bad. So, you know, acquaint us with the less obvious side. Well, that, that, that's, very, that's very benevolent of you instead of other attributions that you might come up with no, at I that point. No, I do point. those too. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> because of the testosterone. Yeah, testosterone as a mammal with Y chromosomes, I, I feel very defensive about testosterone because of like what a horrible reputation it's gotten. Having to explain the fact that in every culture out there and in virtually every species, males are such pains in the neck when it comes to a disproportionate share of violence. Um, and seemingly it's all explained by testosterone. Testosterone causes aggression. Turns out testosterone does not cause aggression in the slightest. What it does is it exaggerates whatever pre-existing tendencies towards aggression you have. You take five rhesus monkeys, males, and you put them together in a social group and they're gonna form a dominance hierarchy. And there's number three sitting in the middle there. He's dominated by one and two. He mops the floor with four and five. So now take three and give him a ton of testosterone. And the question becomes, is he going to be involved in more fights now? Absolutely. So is it now the case that he is challenging numbers one and two and rising in the high? Absolutely not. He still is terrified of one and two, avoids them like the plague. What happens instead is he is a total misery to four and five. You have exaggerated the social learning that he's already had about who you could be aggressive to and who you don't go anywhere near in that regard. All testosterone has done there is up the volume of the social learning that already has been there, which is a very different state than testosterone causes aggression. No surprise, the part of the brain that's most sensitive to testosterone is the amygdala. So does testosterone make amygdaloid neurons suddenly fire and fire off aggressive signals when they wouldn't have otherwise? Absolutely not. If and only if the neurons are already activated, testosterone makes them fire faster. In other words, it's not turning on aggressiveness, it's upping the volume for what's already there. But then it turns out that testosterone does something even more subtle than that, which is in a broad kind of way, what testosterone does is make you do whatever is needed to hold on to your status when it's being threatened. Now, if you're a male baboon, um, all that's ever going to mean is somebody is aggressively threatening you and you're about to be in a fight because the way you defend, you know, it's overt aggression. But humans do all sorts of interesting things, like go to some fancy, like, private school around here on the night that they have their, like, auction of trying to raise money and watch people bidding for who could be the most conspicuously charitable to the school, parentheses, who's got the most money to display. And humans can obtain status by being generous in the right setting. And it turns out you put people playing an economic game where you, cave, you gain status by making generous offers and give people testosterone and they become more generous. Mm -hmm. 
In other words, the problem isn't that testosterone causes aggression. The problem is that we so readily hand out status for being aggressive. Mm -hmm. That's a very different picture of what that hormone is doing. Robert Sapolsky, neurologist, talking about his book, Behave. And that is a wrap on today's broadcast. Brad and Desi are back next time around. I'm Angie Cuero, thanking them for having me in and thanking you for not turning me off. Until next time, good luck, world. Good luck, world.